As the kids go, let me ask you a question. Have you ever found yourself comparing yourself to other people? After all, that's what social media is all about, right? At least Instagram. Facebook used to be about that, but now it's more about politics and mom's recipes. Right? Have you ever found yourself comparing yourself to others? What does that do to your soul? What does that do to your heart? Let me ask you another question. Have you ever found it really difficult to say no to people for fear of what it may cause them to think about you? And it leads to a helter-skelter kind of life where you are overextended in all kinds of ways. What does that do to your heart? What does it do to your soul? Have you ever found yourself avoiding interacting with people because of the overwhelming nature of it or because of the potential of rejection that might come? Or on the other side, have you found yourself investing in a myriad of shallow relationships, thinking that quantity will overdo quality because you're afraid to really be who you are with other people? What's that do to your heart? What's it do to your soul? Have you ever found yourself needing the approval of other people? Have you ever found yourself deeply needing the approval of your spouse? Here's a lesson I've learned in my life. Uh, as I've grown in this area, uh, and I, I've, I tend to be a person who wants approval, right? I, I, not so much of being a people pleaser, but I want people to see me as significant, as, as, as important. And there's this weird thing that happens, like in my gospel growth and growing in that area and thinking and making all kinds of progress, one of the things I've realized over the last number of years is I've just shrunk the audience down to my wife, right? So if she thinks I'm significant, then that matters. And it gets me into all kinds of problems, even problems this very weekend in which I've misinterpreted things that she has said or situations that we find ourselves in. What's it do to your soul when you desperately need the approval of others? Are you someone who is uh, consumed with the idea of self-esteem? That is either feeling good about yourself or having a low self-esteem, which I've often suggested based on the fantastic book, When People Are Big and God is Small by Ed Welch. Both of those are actually a high level of pride because when we have low self-esteem, what's really happening is other people aren't perceiving us at the same high level we're perceiving ourselves. All of these things and many more are symptoms of what the Bible calls the fear of man. The fear of man. And in the book of Proverbs, we are told something significant. Proverbs chapter 29, verse 25. It says, the fear of man is a snare to us. But when we trust the Lord, we have safety. I want to suggest to you this morning that the fear of man is such a 
prolific problem, not only in our world, but in our lives, that it robs us of our gospel peace on a daily basis. To put it in the words of the writer of Proverbs, it is a regular snare in our lives. So let's talk about this. What is the fear of man? Well, the word fear used here uh, certainly is the idea of being afraid of something, and we know what that fear is like. Uh, we took our dog, uh, Nora, to the Celtic Festival yesterday to see Jackson marching in the, in the parade for freedom. Uh, freedom was the second thing in the parade. The first thing in the parade was a group of bagpipes, and our dog was terrified of the bagpipes to an extreme level, right? We know what it's like to be afraid in that way. But this idea of fear is not so much that idea of being afraid of something. It's more the idea of reverence. The idea of revering something in such a way that we grant it control over us. Does that make sense? When we talk about the fear of man, we're talking about revering others in such a way that we grant them control over us, needing their approval, being manipulated by them, uh, falling into codependent relationships, finding our value and our identity in other people. And the writer to Proverbs rightly says, this is a snare. Now, I am not a hunter, and I am certainly not a trapper. But most of us know what this idea of the word snare means. Uh, it was often used in, in Hebrew culture and, and throughout the Old Testament with the context of catching uh, wild fowl or birds, ducks and geese and, and, and wild birds in this way. Uh, and the idea is that a, a snare rightly set does three things. It catches something, it kills it, and it allows the trapper to devour it. So listen to what the writer to Proverbs is saying in a little more stark language. The fear of man will catch you, kill you, and devour you. And this is incredibly true and important for us to dwell deeply on this morning. Now, inherent in this idea of snare, something that, that catches, kills, and devours us is two really important things. The first is that a snare is intentionally set, right? This isn't something that happens out of nowhere. And, and of course, the scriptures are clear uh, about their warning that the enemies of the gospel, uh, the Satan, uh, this world, and our flesh, are actively working against the gospel and the peace that it offers. In fact, Peter writes in his letter, 1 Peter, in chapter 5 and verse 8, uh, fascinatingly, that the devil is prowling around looking for whom he can devour. Right? And so we should rightly see this concept of fear of man as a snare that is intentionally put in front of us regularly by our flesh, by this world, and by the devil himself in order to catch us, kill us, and devour us. Something else that's really important and inherent in this idea. The idea of a snare is that it is a trap, not a trip. And that's not just semantics, is it? Because a trip in our path stump makes us stumble, it, it injures us, perhaps, but we pick ourselves up and we move on. A trap 
catches us and doesn't allow us to move forward. Is there's some sense in, in this idea that the writer of Proverbs is giving us is that when we stumble into this, we stumble into it headlong. And it traps us deeply. And we fall over it time and time again. Or as many psychologists have come to admit, it becomes a deep addiction that we fall into. The fear of man is a snare, regularly robbing our peace. So what are we to do about this? What are simple people like you and me to do about this in which this snare is set everywhere in our world? We're to follow the remedy that Jesus himself gives us when he offers us the gospel. Do you remember it from that first chapter of Mark? Two things, not always very easy to do. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. And we've said as we've gone through this series, this idea of repenting has to do with deposing would-be kings and queens. And when we talked last week about the need to control things, we rightly identified the imposter king as ourselves. Today, when we're talking about the fear of man, we rightly identify the imposter king or queen as other people who we've granted control over ourselves. And we're called into the intentional process of deposing them. And so it's important for us to pause and think about these two words again, even at a deeper level, fear and snare, because what's really happening in the word fear, when we're talking about a reverence that grants control, perhaps a simple way to summarize this is the word worship. What we're actually doing is worshiping other people. And the Apostle Paul reminds us in Galatians chapter 1 and verse 10 that there is a choice, right? I either worship or fear man or I fear God. And he goes on in that text to basically say, I can't follow Jesus if I'm fearing man. In other words, this is a lordship issue. It's a kingship issue. It is a who gets to be on the throne. Other people or Jesus. Earlier in the book of Proverbs, the writer says, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And we have a choice. A fear or reverence that leads to a snare that devours us. Or a rightly placed fear or reverence or worship that leads to wisdom that opens up an understanding to the world we live in and how we ought to live in it. Will we fear God or will we fear others? In fact, the word snare is often used in the Old Testament narratives in the context of idolatry, not in the context of catching geese or ducks. Uh, maybe most prolifically used in the book of Judges, Judges chapter 8, where Gideon makes a golden ephod and everyone comes to worship, and God says, this will become a snare to you because it is a, a redirection of affection off of God. We go all the way back to the Ten Commandments, and we have to understand what's happening there, right? In the beginning of the Ten Commandments, there's the realization that we will love God and take no other gods before Him. This is a, a, a call to a devotion to God, not to other gods. And the snare is 
always about misplaced affection. Why? Because the Scriptures are clear over and over again that what we love, we worship, and what we worship, we follow. Do you see this? What we love, we worship, and what we worship, we follow. And so Paul is breaking it down for us in Galatians chapter 1. <laughs> Who are you going to follow? The path that leads to a snare that robs you of your peace or the path that leads to wisdom that grants you the deep desires of your soul that you long for. In fact, it's not just the use of snare in, in terms of idolatry, but idolatry that leads to enslavement. And so the word snare is used in the book of Deuteronomy and the book of Joshua in this way, speaking specifically about the people being careful to rid the land of all the current inhabitants. Because if they don't, they will become a snare to them. What is the context about? That the, eventually they will, the, the people of Israel will fall to worship the, the idols of these people that will ultimately lead to their separation from God, that will ultimately lead to their enslavement. And this idea of the fear of man is the very same thing. It's a pull for the deepest affections of our heart it's a pool for what we rightly worship because those two things settle what we will and who we will follow. Here's the deal. If we're going to be serious about dealing with this issue, then we need to be uncompromisingly honest with ourselves about the reality of the fear of man in our lives. What it means where it comes from, how it's playing out. We repent. And then we follow Jesus' second word. We believe. We believe the gospel, that Jesus is the rightful, victorious, eternal king, the only one who brings peace to the world through his incarnation, his death, and his resurrection. Inherent in this definition we've given of the gospel, of, of Jesus who is rightful king, an eternal king, a victorious king, is the reality that Jesus is glorious. And so what I want to suggest to you this morning as a succinct and main point is that because God, Jesus, is glorious, we do not have to fear other people. Because God is glorious, we do not have to fear other people. A couple of months ago, we had an entire sermon about the glory of God. Maybe you remember it. Let me summarize it for just a few moments here. The word glory has two words, a Hebrew word and a Greek word. Kavod in Hebrew, doxa in Greek, uh, together sharing this idea of, of a weightiness, a significance, but also a brilliance and a beauty. And we talked about glory being something that's really hard to define logically, but you kind of know it when you see it. It's a need to encounter it. And so we came up with the definition of the glory of God as, as the, the, the reality of who God is, his attributes, his, his, his weight, his brilliance, on display for the world to reckon with, to have to figure out. Here's what I want to say to you this morning, as clearly as I can. 
if we are going to honestly believe the gospel, I don't mean doctrinally or creedally, but on a day-by-day, moment-by-moment basis, if we're going to honestly believe it, we must have had and continue to have encounters with the glory of God. In Exodus, uh, we remember the story of Moses, who's given the Ten Commandments, but when he comes down, you remember the Israelites have already fallen into idolatry. They've already taken other gods, the golden calf. And there's this moment where God's going to be done with the people, and and, he's, and Moses and God are, are, are debating back and forth, and God's like, okay, people can go, but I'm not going to go with them. Do you remember the story? And Moses is saying, no, 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 I, I need you. You have to come with us. And in this whole reality, Moses asks to see the glory of God. Remember this? And when God agrees to show him his glory by passing behind him with his back turned, there is this bold declaration of the name of God. God, Exodus 34, 5, 6, 7, those verses, that God is, is compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in forgiveness, full of loving kindness. The, the Hebrew word hesed, it's a covenant, faithful reality. It is that whenever we have encounters with the glory of God, it leads us, we've said, to a deeper knowledge of who God actually is. It's not just a passing mountaintop experience that made our heart feel interesting but we come into reality of who God actually is his weightiness his gravity his brilliance and his beauty now you say and rightly so okay but God has never talked to me like that and he's never said I'll show you my glory just turn around and I'll pass in front of you and he's never audibly declared his name over you and I get it because he's never done that for me either. And yet, the glory of God is being pronounced uh, effusively all the time. You remember Romans chapter 1, Psalm chapter 19. The glory of God is on display through the created world. The world around us is speaking to the glory of God. Psalm 19 says the rocks literally cry out. It is that we cannot rightly interact with our created world and not interact with the glory of God unless we are misguided. But what's more, we have the Scriptures. And for many of us, we have a love-hate relationship with the Bible, right? Let's just be honest about this for a moment. We're in a safe space here, right? We love the Bible because we're supposed to love it. We hate the Bible for a couple of reasons, right? One is, it tells us a lot of things that are pretty hard. And it gives us some expectations that are hard to meet sometimes. That's challenging, at least for me. The other is, we want to read the Bible all of the time and have these incredible experiences where God speaks to us and we learn more and all of these things. And the truth is that while sometimes that happens, it doesn't always happen and it becomes challenging to engage with scriptures all the time. And I want to suggest to you maybe a different perspective on scripture this morning that is that we ought not to approach it regularly to first order learn more about God or figure out more of life what would happen if every time we open the scriptures whatever rhythm that is for you our number one objective was to encounter the glory of God because that's what the scripture is all about actually 
You say, well, it's supposed to teach us and rebuke us and correct us. Absolutely it is. Because when we have a real encounter with the glory of God, we come to know who God actually is. The scriptures are telling a divine and powerful drama about God's redemptive rescue of his created order. Every time we open it, we ought to come into an encounter with the glory of God, not be looking for three ways to have a better day. Does that make sense? Or, you know, or for someone like me, uh, three points to a future sermon. <laughs> you get it, right? We should be blown away by who God is and that he's making himself available to us. In the same way, can I share something with you? The whole reason we gather together on Sundays is chiefly for two things. One, to remember the resurrection is true. Right? That's our primary reason for gathering here. You're like, well, why do you talk for 40 minutes every week then? I don't, I'm not sure. Right? We'll figure that out later. The second reason is to encounter the glory of God. Right? You say, it's not to learn more? Well, sure, we want you to learn. It's not to sing songs. Not to, all of these things, singing, preaching, scripture, all of it is for the same reason, the glory of God. They're all to encounter the glory of God. Why do we sing songs? To encounter the glory of God with our heart and with our mind. Why do we preach sermons? To give you three points to a better life? No. For us, me as the preacher, you as the receivers, or me as the receiver, whoever else is preaching, to, to regularly encounter the glory of God, to see God for who He is, and to reckon with it. What does that mean for us? We have to regularly be having encounters with the glory of God if we are going to believe the gospel is true and act on it. Because there are myriads of competing gospels in our world. And many of them have a much more tangible nature than the invisible God who we know, love, and worship. And that's why, quite frankly, creation, scripture, singing, sermons, Sunday gatherings aren't enough. To have real and meaningful and engaging encounters with the glory of God, we need to regularly encounter Jesus himself who Paul writes to the Colossians, is the image of the invisible God. If you want to know who God is, what he's like, what he's doing, look nowhere other than Jesus. That's why the scripture is pointing to and dealing with the implications of Jesus through its entire narrative. That's why the songs we try to sing when we gather on Sunday are all talking about Jesus and the gospel. These are the realities because if we don't see God in his glory, then we will be prone to the trap of over-revering other things, even good things like your spouse or your kids or your friends. The fear of man is a snare. The remedy is the gospel, but to believe the gospel we must have these regular encounters with the glory of God that rightly situate God himself next to any and all humans who would take his place in our life.
And if we can't see them in their stark contrast, we'll continue to fall prey to the traps that are before us. We need to believe the gospel by seeing and encountering the glory of God. Or, as the writer of Proverbs says in Proverbs chapter nine, chapter 29, verse 25, we need to trust God and therefore be safe. This idea of trust has the idea of, of believing with your whole self. It really is the connotation of worship. If the fear of man is the worship of man, the idea of trusting God is the right worship of God. The fear of man snares the fear of God or the worship of God. Safety. And what we find is when we have encounters with the glory of God, it always leads to knowledge, which always leads to worship. That's why Moses, when he has this encounter with God, bows down. That's why Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, when he has the profound encounter with the glory of God, reckons deeply with himself and and says he's not worthy and he's unclean and bows before God. That's why Paul on the road to Damascus, when he has the encounter with the glory of God, falls face first on the ground before him. And that's why Paul in his letter to the Romans, Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, says to us that the only right response to the gospel, which is the glory of God, is to offer ourselves prostrate as living and holy sacrifices to God. That glory leads not just to knowledge, but to true and profound worship. And worship, as we said last week, usually is about releasing our hands and letting go of control. But worship is not just about hands, it's also about eyes, isn't it? It takes our eyes off of those around us and it lifts them up. That's why there's this interesting story in Exodus chapter 20. Uh, Exodus 20, of course, is the Ten Commandments are given, and the people see this, this, what's happening on Mount Sinai, and Moses is talking to the people. This is the people fear God for what they see. They say to Moses, you go talk to him. We don't want to be anywhere near him for fear of our lives. And Moses says something fascinating in Exodus 20, verse 20. He says, no, no, God is is testing you, he's giving you this fear, he's showing you his glory, he's testing you so that you will not sin. There's this idea that an experience with the glory of God, this fear that comes from this worship that comes from it, actually protects us from tripping up or falling into traps around us, right? It keeps us from sin. Let's give you three simple reasons here, and there's probably far more than this. The first reason that worship keeps us from sinning or tripping up or falling prey to the snare that is the fear of man is that it rightly situates God in his place and creation and in its place. It gives us an accurate view. Right? You'll love it in your rearview mirrors of your car and the side mirrors that says objects are closer than they appear or not as I forget what it is. But the idea is we never really have in this world it's this perfect vision of things as they are. The only time things actually come into focus is actually when we take a posture of worship to God. And things in this world come into their right place and God into his right place. But something else happens. 
is that we do not just see God as high and lofty. We rightly do. But worship also, second point here, is that it, it actually lifts us to be where God is. It was fascinating to me. Proverbs chapter 29, verse 25 again. Fear of man is a snare, but those who trust in the Lord will be safe. Now this word safe is fascinating in the original language. You know what it actually means? It means to be high. It means to be picked up and put up high somewhere. That's why in the New American Standard translation, which is a much more literal translation, it's the word exalted. Is that who he who trusts in the Lord will be exalted. He'll be lifted up. Now, I understand why the NIV and other places don't want to use that word, because exalted almost has the idea of worship sometimes in our language. But the idea literally is something that's lifted up. So if we think of fear of man in this world around us almost like a minefield. Have you ever seen someone have to navigate a minefield or heard about it? They're sticking knives in the ground and trying to, to clear little passive section. Imagine if, when coming upon a minefield, a helicopter shows up and simply lifts you up and carries you over it. This is the picture of what's happening here. That actually what's happening when we worship is not just that we're seeing God in His right place, but we're actually being lifted up with him. I love Psalm 91. Listen to what it says, verse 3 and 4. It says, Surely he, this is God, will save you from the fowler's snare, right? And from deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his feathers. So here's the biblical proof that God equals Mother Goose. He will cover you with his feathers. That one didn't land as good as I expected. Can we laugh harder than that? Was it that I said mother goose and not father goose? He will cover you with his feathers, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. Go on to verse 9. If you say the Lord is my refuge, you make the Most High your dwelling. What is the imagery? Sorry, Sue. That, the mo- that God not only is the Most High, but in our worship we reside in Him. On high. Far above the snares that are hidden around us. This picture is incredible, isn't it? Of a God who's on high and yet takes the form of a goose or a chicken or a duck or whatever is the imagery here and comes down and spreads his feathers over us and reclaims us and lifts us on high. This is the glory of God. And yet we have to stop and ask the question, how does something like this happen? Of course, even Psalm 91 is a picture of Jesus, isn't it? Earlier in the Psalms, the psalmist asks a really important question. Who can ascend the holy hill of God? And the implied answer is, no one. And so what is God going to do when his people can't get to where he is? The gospel says he comes to where we are. And in the person of Jesus, this is the psalmist's imagery, not mine, spreads his feathers around us and rescues us and lifts us up 
on high. And this is the very imagery that the Apostle Paul picks up most profoundly in the book of Ephesians, but elsewhere, that says, when we are in Christ, we have every spiritual blessing that's before us. What's happening, this idea of in Christ? There's this beautiful theology of union with Jesus that is that, that Jesus is with us here, but union with Christ also means that we are with Him on high. And Paul picks this up in Ephesians and says, in Christ you have all of these spiritual blessings. Predestined, adopted as sons and daughters, given the Spirit of God, received into His family. The imagery is of helpless ducks and geese like you and me who have been rescued from certain snare and lifted up on high. And I remind you that the glory of God is most profoundly found in Jesus because He's not just the God who is happy to sit on high and announce to the world His glory, but He demonstrates it at an even deeper level by descending the hill that none of us can climb, by protecting us from the snares that we certainly will fall victim to, and by lifting us up to be where He is. And so when you believe the Gospel that Jesus is the rightful, victorious, and eternal King, and when you cling to the reality that you are therefore in Christ and on high, your heart no longer so deeply desires the affirmation, the approval, the significance, security, and acceptance that other people supposedly can offer us. And something supernatural happens as we're lifted on high. The third thing I think is true is that worship then reminds us that because we are in Christ, we too are victorious. Even when we find ourselves hanging in the snare of the fowler. That is, even when we've screwed it up, just like I did massively this weekend, and found ourselves dangling, that through repentance and belief, we are rescued by a God who loves us. Friends, peace is only offered, only offered in its fullness through God. And the only means of being with God is Jesus. That's why he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And the only means of day by day accessing that reality in the midst of a minefield of snares is to continue asking yourself the important gospel questions. Where am I looking for approval? Where am I looking for significance? Where am I looking for security? Maybe better said, what am I worshiping? Or who am I worshiping? And is not God far more glorious than them? Peace, or what the psalmist calls safety, happens when we can rest in the nest 
on high and be able to stop navigating the minefield below. The gospel is true. The tomb is empty. Jesus is the victorious, rightful, and eternal King. He is glorious. And because that's true, you do not have to fear other people. Can I pray with you?